Hello again and welcome to the Daily in Christ podcast. I'm Mark Fanus, and uh, we are really digging into the riches of God's Word here in a study called Hebrews, the Glory of the New Covenants. And there's a lot about the book of Hebrews that is, well, it's a game changer, as we like to say here in the United States. It's a paradigm shifter. We sort of default in our thinking uh, of a performance-based, Christian-centered so-called Christianity rather than a grace-based, Christ-centered Christianity. And so as we pass through the truth of the book of Hebrews, this is really changing the orbit of our lives. Instead of the orbit being us in the center and God sort of, uh, you know, going, uh, revolving around us, the true center is God himself and our lives revolve around him. Now, last time when we were at Hebrews chapter 4, there was quite a bit of talk there in that chapter about God's rest and the importance of entering God's rest. And I feel like we need to spend just even a little bit more time on this subject and, and connect perhaps a few more dots because we just can't say it enough. Why? Well, it seems that Christians today talk all of the time of their Christian life in terms of struggling or striving or trying. And let me ask, where is the rest and the ceasing from works in all that? We heard over and over again this this term rest comes up in Hebrews chapter 4, eight times, seven of those eight times, uh, the word means to cease from works and come to a state of rest, the Greek word katapausis. And we made the very important point that the scripture makes right there in Hebrews chapter 4, that it's not our rest that is being referenced, but rather God's rest. God has rested because he has ceased from his work. And we talked about the uh, the importance of, uh, back in Genesis chapter 2, God had created the world and the creation, and after six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. He ceased from his work. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Then God blessed the seventh day, the Sabbath day, and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Again, I want to bring out the fact that so often when we think of Sabbath, we think of a day off in the course of the week. Well, that was what it was under the law covenant, but under the new covenant, the idea of Sabbath has a radically deeper, richer meaning. We brought up the fact that God himself rests, and we asked the question, why in the world would an omnipotent God rest? It's not because he's tired. It's because his work is finished. God has finished his work. Well, why do we cease from work on the Sabbath? Well, again, Genesis chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3 says that God has finished his work from the foundation of the world. We cease from work because God has blessed the Sabbath, because God has set the Sabbath apart as holy. We don't treat it like any other time. 
In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, it says this, There remains therefore a rest. Uh, and, and the Greek word there, you know, I mentioned that the word rest comes up eight times in Hebrews chapter 4. Seven is the Greek word that says to cease works and to come to a state of rest. But the one time in Hebrews chapter 9, it's a completely different Greek word, sabbatismos, which means Sabbath keeping. So literally in verse 9, it says, there remains therefore a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. And we talked last time about how under uh, Jewish law, they go to tremendous ends, tremendous means to avoid breaking the Sabbath. Well, what is breaking the Sabbath? It's doing work. Because the command is to cease from work on the Sabbath. So Sabbath keeping is continuing to cease from your works. That's what Sabbath keeping means. And again, Hebrews chapter 9, there remains therefore a Sabbath keeping you continuing to cease from your works for the people of God. Verse 10 of Hebrews uh, chapter 4 says this, for, here's the reason, He who has entered his rest, that's speaking of God's rest, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So God has ceased from his works. He has finished his works. Let me ask you the question. Is God still finished with his works? Well, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3 says that God has finished his work from the foundation of the world. And when it comes to the work of our salvation, that was finished 2,000 years ago by Jesus Christ in his earthly life and ministry, and then his suffering, sacrifice, and death at the cross and his resurrection. It's a historic fact And Hebrews is about the finished work of Jesus Christ. Do you see how this is connecting? Do you see how important this is? So again, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 10 says, For he who has entered God's rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. When is the Sabbath? The Sabbath is today. Hebrews 4, 7a says, again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, we are in the Sabbath day today. It isn't uh, Saturday. It isn't Sunday. It isn't Monday or Tuesday. It's all of those days. It's not that there's one particular day that is above the others. And I know this is really kind of kicking back our religious reactions to these things. But again, carefully look through the book of Hebrews. What is referred to is not a day, it's a condition. We are. It says at the beginning of Hebrews, we who have believed do enter that rest. That belief took place historically one time back in time that was saving faith that brought us into the Christian life in the first place by the grace of God. You see, we are those who are in Christ in Christ. And Christ right now is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And the biblical metaphor of rest is being seated. 
Jesus is seated right now at the right hand of God the Father. And later on in Hebrews, it actually says he's just simply waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. Jesus is at rest because he has finished his work. Therefore, because we are in Christ, we are at rest. We are in the reality of his finished work. Now, what is required on the Sabbath? To keep ceasing from works and resting because God has finished his work from the foundation of the world. And some may wonder, well, if we're supposed to keep resting, how in the world does anything get done? Well, I want to talk to you for a few minutes because this is really setting up a very important point. The difference between dead works versus serving the living God. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 says this, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Well, what is the dead works? Well, the dead works are the works of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. And serving the living God is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. You see, dead works, biblically, is serving God with flesh, with mere human flesh, human ability, human strength, resources, and wisdom. I think of a phrase that's in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is chastising the immature Corinthian church and saying, you are behaving like mere men. You see, dead works is activity that is done merely out of our humanity. Dead works are those works that basically come out from ourselves rather than works that are done living works out of the vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, when speaking of the fact that he was the vine and we are the branches, said in John chapter 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. So dead works, you could be doing a lot of stuff, but it amounts to nothing because it's being done from a death principle. It's being done out of ourselves. Now, on the other side of this thing is serving God in the life of the Spirit. I'm going to go through several different scriptures to talk about this. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, a favorite verse of mine and many Christians, the Apostle Paul said this. He said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Listen to this. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Stop right there. Think of the Apostle Paul. Think of his amazing impact. Even when he was chained in prison, He still had amazing impact to our very day. He was writing epistles, and those epistles have become important parts of the Bible. He labored more abundantly than they all, yet he quickly qualifies saying this, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. Again, what are we trying to grab a hold of here? Ceasing from our dead works, 
and continuing in that state of rest, of dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace. Let me continue about more on the subject of serving God in the life of the Spirit. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 25, says this, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Did you hear that? Christ in you. It isn't your resources or my resources in us. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory. He continues and he says this, verse 28, him we preach, Christ we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Wow. So again, the productivity of someone like the Apostle Paul, he says it was because of the grace of God. And remember, the grace of God is God loving you, God accepting you, God equipping you, God resourcing you abundantly, not because of you, but because of the goodness of God. That's God's grace. More on serving God in the life of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, I want to stop right there. Those verses come right off Romans chapter 7, where there is all these verses that talk about struggling with sin. And that is the condition of the sinner without Christ when they interface with the law of God, which is good and holy and righteous. And they try, try, try in the deadness of themselves with dead works, and they fail to do nothing at all except sin more. And so here in Romans chapter 8 is this incredible uh, verse in verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, again, dead works, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirits. Again, the idea of the Sabbath rest in the Christian life is we have already entered into God's rest because he has already finished. He finished it all through Jesus Christ. That's what Hebrews is all about. Therefore, all that's needed for us as believers is to keep the rest. Let me, let me change that just a little bit. To, to keep ceasing from works. The Christian life is not a thing of walking in our works, our dead works. It is serving God in the life of the Spirit. You know, the Reformers, 
restored so much to the church in the form of biblical Christianity and the biblical gospel. And they said that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, a lot of people think that's the way you get into the Christian life and that's it. Wrong. True, it's correct that that's the way that you get into the Christian life, but it's wrong to think that, well, you yeah, you get into the Christian life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But once you're in the Christian life, it's struggle, strive, and try. Wrong, wrong, wrong. God doesn't abandon his principle of grace, which maximizes his glory, when it comes to living the Christian life. The Bible says that the just shall live by faith. That's in Habakkuk 2.4, Romans 1.17. It's here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, and in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. The just shall live by faith. You see, it's looking by faith to Christ who is in you, the hope of glory. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Do you see that this grace life, this spirit life, as opposed to living life in the death of our own works, in the death of our own striving, is really the new covenant Christian life? That's why In Hebrews chapter 4, so much is made about us ceasing from our works because God has finished his work. I hope this is starting to turn a few lights on for you. I think for some of us that's happening, and I'm thrilled. And Before I began the podcast today, I was praying for the Lord to do that in our hearts, not just your heart, but also in my heart. You know, I want to talk just a moment about and, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier when we were in Hebrews chapter 2, but I want to bring it up again. This idea of a great salvation versus the myopic salvation of the modern church, at least the modern American church. You know what myopia is? It's nearsightedness. I have myopia. I can't see things far. All I can see is things near. And now that I'm above the age of 50, I'm having difficulty seeing things near as well. But myopia, myopia is the idea of a nearsightedness, but not being able to see beyond that. And we have in the American church, a myopic salvation. In fact, I would say it's an amputated salvation because the modern gospel equals forgiveness and a ticket to heaven that could be canceled, by the way, according to some theology. Whereas the biblical gospel says in Romans 1.17, a righteousness from God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just, the righteous, shall live by faith, Romans 1.17. You see, the great salvation of the Bible, the great salvation that our Lord Jesus Christ uh, gave his life for, shed his blood for, is far, far more extensive than forgiveness. I mean, thank God for the forgiveness that we have. But it also includes propitiation, redemption, remission of sins, sanctification, glorification, and saving to the uttermost. In fact, uh, 
why don't you turn in your Bible, keep your finger there in Hebrews. We're going to get to Hebrews chapter 5 in a bit. But if you would turn to Romans chapter 3, and uh, we're going to pick it up. Um, let's see. Let's, let's begin in verse 19. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. And then once we get to verse 21, is probably the most comprehensive yet succinct definition of the gospel. Okay, Romans 3, beginning in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from law, and I would say, friends, that's apart from your striving, your trying, your struggling, your works, apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Again, that's in Romans chapter 3, and we began in verse 19. We don't have time to really dig into the depths of that, but I think that begins to scope out biblically what is the dimensions of this great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Not that wimpy, little, myopic salvation, so-called, of the modern American church. Look, Jesus paid so much. He did so much and he finished so much so that we would be able to enjoy a great salvation. We would be able to enjoy a living Christian life that is not based upon our own dead works. You know, Hebrews brings out in high definition all the dimensions of this great salvation. And it's very important that we don't let our minds sort of drift into default mode, you know, thinking of salvation in a very short-sighted, myopic, amputated form of forgiveness and a ticket to heaven. In fact, the, the Bible speaks of salvation in three tenses, in the past, accomplished, in the present, that's for preservation in an evil and corrupt generation, the walk of faith, and depending upon Christ's uh, God's grace, and the future tens of salvation, which is the transformation of our earthly bodies uh, being made 
spiritual bodies. That's glorification. There's the three tenses of salvation. So not only does the uh, salvation, this great salvation that we have, have incredible depth in dimensions, but it also has three time dimensions as well, past, present, and future. Well, let's get into the subject matter that we mean to get into, and that is Hebrews chapter 5. And uh, the focus for the next several chapters, for the most part, is going to be riveted on the Lord Jesus Christ and how he is qualified to be our high priest, how he is qualified to be the son that did the sacrifice, how he accomplished all for us, finished all for us. And it just goes through point by point. Right now, the focus is on the fact that Jesus is indeed our compassionate high priest. And as we get into Hebrews chapter 5, I want to uh, say that this is one of the places in the Bible where the chapter divisions aren't very good. Um, Probably a better place to begin this would have been in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And so, I know that we had done 14 through 16 in the last podcast, but I'd like to actually pick it up, and we're going to read right now uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14, uh, all the way till we get to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10. So let's look at this. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins." He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was He who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. All right, let's just walk through these wonderful, rich verses. And remember, the subject is what it is to be a high priest, first of all, and how Jesus is a superior, compassionate high priest. So 
We're looking, uh, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 4, seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Seeing then, that's the point. The focus is not me, it's not you, it's not what we do or fail to do for God. The focus is Jesus and Jesus as a great high priest. He's the one who really gets it all done, unlike the priests under the covenant of law. It is Jesus who has accomplished all, passed through the heavens, and he is the one in whom we hold fast our confession. We can take Jesus and his finished work to the bank. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, we hold fast our confession for, here is the reason, Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, notice the plural, weaknesses. Any one of us have more than one weakness? I know I do. Why? Because Jesus was in all points tempted as we are. And I made the point last time that when the devil tempted Jesus, he blasted Jesus with everything, every possible temptation you can think of. He was tempted in all points. Why was he tempted in all points? Because of the many people he would save. And yet, Jesus was without sin. You see, if Jesus did sin, then he could not be a legitimate savior. He could not be a perfect high priest. And that means that we are lost forever dead in trespasses and sins. And and it says that Jesus is a compassionate high priest. Uh, He can sympathize with our weaknesses. That's powerful. You know, we could go through trial. We could go through temptation and we could think, does God really know what I'm going through? The answer is yes. Why does God know it? Well, God knows it because Jesus in the form of humanity was blasted with every point of temptation, even as we are and yet without sin. And it's on this basis. Verse 16 Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Therefore, because Jesus is our compassionate high priest, we can indeed come boldly to God. And that's something that is so encouraging. Because of him and what he's accomplished, we don't have to be timid before God. We don't have to think, well, I messed up. Will God accept me? We don't have to think, well, did I pray enough? Did I read my Bible enough? Did I give enough in the offering? Did I do enough? No. Our boldness is not based upon our our failures or successes as we think they might be. Our boldness is based upon the reality of our compassionate high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Isn't that amazing? It's not a throne of wrath. 
through Jesus Christ, it is a throne of grace. And I mentioned a little bit earlier, the grace is God loving us, accepting us, and blessing us, not because of anything we've done, but simply because God is that good. We come boldly to a throne of grace. Why? That we may obtain mercy. You see, a person doesn't get mercy unless they're guilty, right? Mercy spares us from what we deserve as guilty people, judgment, condemnation, and wrath. And we find grace to help us in time of need. Grace, that's God giving us what we don't deserve, but what Jesus deserves. Oh, and it's so encouraging to help us in our time of need. My friend, we don't come boldly to the throne of grace only at the beginning of the Christian life, to begin the Christian life. But we can come boldly no matter the need, no matter the circumstance. You need mercy? Well, you've got mercy because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. You can come boldly before that throne of grace. You know, I want to... This reminds me of when... uh, John F. Kennedy was the president of the White House, and uh, he had two kids, two small kids, John Jr., they called him John John, and Caroline. And at the time that uh, President Kennedy was in the White House, John John would have been about two years of age. Now, for anybody to see the president of the United States, it takes an incredible amount of things you have to go through if you're fortunate enough to meet the man in the first place. I mean, you got to go through all sorts of clearances, security. Oh, my. It, it is very, very difficult to see the president of the United States. But the story is told that uh, John F. Kennedy had uh, taken the desk in the Oval Office, that old historic desk, and there used to be a uh, board that was in the front of the desk, and he had that removed. And the reason why he had that removed was that John John had the the habit of running down the the halls of the White House, running past the burly guards, running past the Secret Service, bursting through the door and running underneath the desk and crawling up onto his daddy's lap. The daddy happened to be the president of the United States. Now, I call that bold, bold, don't you? Think about that. John John didn't have to think twice. The man that was in the White House, the man who was the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, was his father. And so he could just run into daddy's lap at any time. They could be talking about serious matters of security, and John John had free access. Dear friend, if you are in Christ because of the grace of God, you've been born again. You have received Christ by faith, believing on the gospel, you have the same boldness, not with the president of the United States, but with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the president of presidents, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can come boldly before God to find help in time of need. I'm sure there were times when little John John might have scraped his knee and he ran down those halls to his daddy for help. 
Because of what Jesus has done, above all, my dear friend, you can run to your heavenly Father. He loves you. Why? Because his Son, Jesus Christ, did it all for you. Isn't that incredible? Oh, that's so encouraging to know that. Dear friends, Hebrews isn't just theology that we stuff in our heads and then spit out to impress others. This is reality. This is truth. This is how God relates to us. In fact, God relates to us in no other way. But by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, we're going to stop there for today. And next time, I promise, we will get into Hebrews chapter 5. And it's going to be a great blessing for you. Dear friends, I'm so thankful for the Word of God, the Bible, the clarity of the Bible. As we go to it, not with our own prejudices, but we just go to it and learn. Let the Bible teach us and Scripture interprets Scripture. And I can't say this enough. It is important that we don't try to grasp the Bible with our own mere human understanding. It just simply isn't enough. That's why God gives us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings illumination. It's like the light being turned on. And when the light is turned on, we can see many things. The Spirit of God works with the Word of God and brings light. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do come boldly before your throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need. And Lord, our need at this moment right now is that we would see more clearly the glorious truth of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That we would understand that we have a Christian life that is one that proceeds from the place of rest, your finished work. And Father, that this life in the Spirit, as opposed to life living in dead works, this life in the Spirit flows out of this finished work of Jesus Christ. It flows from your throne of grace. It works on the principle that the just will live by faith. Dear Father, we cannot rely upon our own weak human understanding. So, Lord, we're so grateful that you have given us the Holy Spirit, the one who actually breathed this scripture. And, Father, I pray that you, by the Holy Spirit, would reveal Christ to us in all of his glorious dimensions. Father, may we not conduct our lives looking to ourselves and what we can do and the many ways we fail, but, Lord, may we conduct our Christian life understanding that it is Christ in us, the hope of glory, Christ our life. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.